1: Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, and I mean simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history. Like stingrays, blackboards and roller coasters. Sam, I like to think of
2: Histories of the Unexpected as a roller coaster ride through history. However, (laughs) we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining... How those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of tattoos is in fact all about the Roman Empire? Or that the history of oranges, a very underestimated fruit, is in fact all about Tudor spies (laughs)
1: I love those. The history of the orange is one of my favourite things, definitely. Me too. The man sitting opposite me who will help pilot us through this wonderful historical world is one of the country's leading professors of history. He's a very funny and a very knowledgeable man. It's James Daybell. Hi, James.
2: Hello, Sam. And I'm coming in to land this very minute in order to help pilot This very episode, because the man sitting opposite me is the truly famous historical adventurer himself, Dr. Sam Willis.
1: Hello, Sam. Hello. Hello, everyone. I'm not being very uh, adventurous at the moment because I'm spending all of my time in my shed. (laughs) Trying not to get coronavirus. Now, nonetheless, we are doing um, some fun with these podcasts. This is another episode in our special series of homeschooling for kids. We've done loads of them. I hope you're enjoying them all. And each subject, what we do is we take a subject that I bet you don't think has a history. And we prove that it does. And today, this one's a great one. We're doing the history of sucking up.
2: Oh, that sounds a bit creepy, doesn't it? Creeping up to people.
0: (laughs) Flattering, fawning.
1: Exactly, yeah, giving them what they want. It's a wonderful topic for history, actually, and um, I i was sitting down and thinking about the, the, the very many ways that you could actually explore this in the past. Did you think of any?
2: I can. I think it's about it's about grovelling, but it's also about yes-men. So it's about sort of fawning obsequiousness. It's those creeping, crawling individuals who surround great men and great women in power. Those sycophants who basically only tell their masters precisely what they want to hear because, A, they want to get on themselves, but also often they are frightened. So think of people that surrounded Joseph Stalin who were in fear of their lives and behaved in a particular way. It reminds me of the Queen of Hearts in Alice in Wonderland who famously went around saying, off with his head. So it's people worrying about their
1: own lives. Yeah, you can think about it in all sorts of different ways. You can think about it in terms of international relations as well. Um, if you think about this moment when um, there's a proposed marriage between Prince Charles, he is the son of James the Sixth and First of England, and there's a desire to get... Um, his son, Prince Charles, to marry the Infanta Maria of Spain. And there's, there's a moment of the English really sucking up to the Spanish Empire to try and form this match so that the two monarchies would be united together. It's a fascinating period of international relations. And also in terms of politics, there are often moments in history, really key moments, where power is shared between the leading parties, usually through coalition governments. Most famously, it happened uh, for the First World War and also for the Second World War. In the First World War, you have Asquith and Lloyd George's coalition and then Winston Churchill's coalition, uh, his coalition ministry of 1940 to five. And in the run up to the forming of those coalitions, you've got each of the political parties. They're usually trying to bite lumps of each out, out of each other. They're usually trying to bite lumps out of each other in the House of Commons, but just before they join together, there's a moment of sucking up so that they can really start to agree on policy moving forward. But most obviously of all, James, I was thinking about kowtowing in the Chinese period, imperial China, this business of if you were very lucky enough to actually go and meet the Chinese emperor, you had to physically grovel in their presence and there were different ways of doing this, but the full kowtow involved going from a standing position to a kneeling position three times and then knocking your head on the ground nine times to prove your deference oh. and your desire to do their will. Oh, well. my
2: gosh. Well, for me, it's all about apples, Sam. <laughs> it is. It's an apple for the teacher. Placing a, an apple on the teacher's desk is is a way of sucking up. So it's about the history
1: of relationships between between teachers and their pupils. That's really good. I I actually uh, talked to both of my kids about this and they both claimed that the other one was a suck up to the teachers. (laughs) But today we are going to be doing this in specific relation to what was going on in the 1930s, the rise of the Nazis and the way that uh, British politicians in particular dealt with this growing menace in Germany. So to understand what happened, you need to have a bit of the background. So what we've got here is we're going to be doing other podcasts, one on bullies, which is going to be on the rise of the Nazis Um, in particular. You need to have have a listen to that one when it comes out in a week or so's time. But you've got this power, the Nazi power, they've come into a great deal of strength, and led by Hitler. And Hitler starts to do things which make the British very, very uncertain indeed. One of the most important things he does is 1933 is he removes Germany from the League of Nations. We've done a podcast on the League of Nations called Epic Fails. And one of the key moments here is Hitler refusing to take part in this International League of Nations, which is set up specifically to prevent war. And just after he does that, he starts rearming Germany. And all of this is against the Versailles Treaty. We've also talked about this in our podcast on blame, blame for the First World War. So he's furious at the way Germany's been treated after the First World War. He refuses to follow um, the policies of the major powers of Europe. He starts to rearm Germany. He tries to take over Austria, but he's prevented by Mussolini, the fascist leader of Italy. He then holds a massive rearmament rally in Germany in 1935. He reintroduces uh, conscription in Germany in 1936. He sends sends German troops into the Rhineland. He makes an anti-communist alliance with Japan. This is all in 1936. In 1937, he, he then has a chance to try out these horrific weapons of war that Germany has been developing and inventing in the last five years or so and he tries them all out in the Spanish Civil War. He proves to himself that Ger- and to others that Germany is a significant military power to be feared. So all of this is happening in Europe and the British are getting terrified of it. The Prime Minister is a guy called Neville Chamberlain and there are some things you need to know about Neville Chamberlain. First of all is that he served during the First World War in the the cabinet, I was in the government, and he was director general of the national service, and that was a role that was right at the heart of government, and he would have witnessed at first hand the sheer horrors of the war and the impact of the First World War on the British nation. And he was utterly committed that it was not going to happen again. He becomes prime minister in thirty-seven, nineteen thirty-seven. 1937. This is just after Hitler um, has been developing all of his weapons and he's just been trying them out in the Spanish civil war. One of the most important things about Neville Chamberlain is his perception of what happened in the Versailles Treaty after the First World War. Germany's cross with the way they've been treated, that they've been made to accept guilt for the First World War. They've had all of uh, a huge amount of financial fines imposed on them. They can't have a military. Ne- Chamberlain, actually, he believes that Germany's grievances about this treaty are real. He, he, to a certain extent, understands their problems. So I'm now going to read a little bit of a speech um, by Chamberlain as he is in charge of a country that feels like it's preparing for war with Germany, but he's absolutely doing everything he can to prevent it. How horrible, fantastic, incredible it is that we should be digging trenches and trying on gas masks here because of a quarrel in a faraway country between people of whom we know nothing. However much we may sympathise with a small nation confronted by a big and powerful neighbour, we cannot in all circumstances undertake to involve the whole British Empire in war simply on her account. If we have to fight, it must be on larger issues than that. I am myself a man of peace to the depths of my soul. Armed conflict between nations is a nightmare to me. War is a fearful thing and we must be very clear before we embark on it that it is really the great issues that are at stake. So there we have Chamberlain there preparing to suck up to Hitler. That's what he's going to do. He's going to support and pursue a policy of appeasement, which essentially is a policy by the British to give Hitler exactly what he wants just to prevent a war.
0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: And this policy of appeasement we see being employed by Britain and France throughout the 1930s, as we've seen in our last podcast, the League of Nations crumbling Appeasement was the policy that politicians turned to in a new way in order to keep the peace. In other words, it was basically giving Hitler exactly what he wanted in order to stop him from going to war. And what's really important to understand here, and I think it comes through in Chamberlain's speech that Sam just read out, it's the idea, the belief... But what Hitler wanted for Germany was in fact reasonable and the idea that when his reasonable demands in their eyes had been satisfied, that then Hitler would stop. Now, I want to tell you now about the Sudetenland crisis of 1938 because this is a key example of appeasement in action which led to the Munich Agreement, which Neville Chamberlain famously waved his piece of paper declaring peace in our time. He was the British Prime Minister who who absolutely, probably more than anyone at the time, believed that appeasement was the right policy. Now, in 1938, what happened was Germans living on the borderlands of Czechoslovakia, in other words, this part of the country called the Sudetenland, started to demand a union with Hitler's Germany, partly because Hitler had encouraged Konrad Henlein, who was the leader of the Sudeten Nazis, to rebel and to encourage people to demand a union with Germany. So this really gives him the excuse to get things going, because the Czechs refused, Hitler then threatens war, and on the 30th September during the Munich Agreement, without discussing it with Czechoslovakia, without getting in touch with them and asking them what they wanted, Britain and France carved up the Sudetenland and gave it on a plate to Germany, because this was their approach to Hitler as he built up greater Germany, in Central Europe and in 1938 he united Austria and Germany which we've seen is known as the Anschluss and he demands the Sudetenland, this German-speaking area of Czechoslovakia and in so doing what he does is he breaks the terms of the Treaty of Versailles and the League of Nations faced with this kind of aggression is absolutely powerless to intervene. Now, fundamental here is that to Neville Chamberlain, Britain's Prime Minister, and France's Édouard Deladier, this policy of appeasement, negotiating with Hitler and offering concessions, was precisely how they thought that they could control him. And What happens in a blow-by-blow account happens very fast indeed from the 12th of September through to the 30th of September. We've got this whistle-stop diplomacy that takes place around this story of the Sudetenland. And the 12th to the 13th of September 1938, Hitler is encouraging Konrad Henlein, the leader of the Sudeten Nazis, to rebel, demanding union with Germany. When the Czech government declares martial law, Hitler retaliates by threatening war himself. Then on the 15th of September 1938, Chamberlain goes to see Hitler. And without consulting Czechoslovakia, he promises to give him all the areas of this part of Sudetenland where more than 50% of the population is German. He then goes on to France and persuades them to agree with what he's doing. About a week later... On the 22nd and 23rd of September 1938, Chamberlain goes back to tell Hitler about the decision. But now Hitler ups the ante and demands not just the part of the Sudetenland that has 50% of the population speaking German, but all of the Sudetenland. At this point, Chamberlain refuses and it looks like War is about to break out. This is the straw that finally broke the camel's back. But Chamberlain calls the crisis a quarrel in a faraway country between people of whom we know nothing. And then on the 30th of September 1938, at Munich, Britain and France agree to give Hitler the Sudetenland. And Chamberlain waves his famous piece of paper promising peace in our time. And what happens is German troops then march into the Statenland and, and are welcomed with open arms. Appeasement has basically failed to stop Hitler. Now, there are a number of reasons that are important to understand for why appeasement was adopted as a policy. Firstly, the British people wanted peace and they didn't want war in 1938 by any stretch of the imagination. Chamberlain, as Sam had said, remembered the slaughter of World War I and he didn't want that kind of apocalyptic destruction of civilization again. Secondly, many of Hitler's complaints appeared reasonable at the time, especially, as Sam was saying, around the Treaty of Versailles. Thirdly, Britain's armed forces were simply not ready for war this point and they couldn't have helped out Czechoslovakia anyway. What is interesting if you have a look at the mobilization and munitions effort that is put in in the year before war is declared with Germany, Britain ramps up its military production and finally Chamberlain wants a strong Germany which would serve as a barrier against expansion by communist Russia. The problem With appeasement, however, is that Czechoslovakia is weakened. Britain gains a year to build up its armed forces. Hitler decides that Britain and France aren't afraid of him at all. And basically, he can do whatever he wanted. Russia decides that Britain and France will never stand up to Hitler. And that war between them and Germany is inevitable. The people of Britain realise that basically they have been fooled by this and that war is inevitable, and in a sort of roundabout way, this basically means that it improves the war morale for the British people, because in a way they they felt that they have done everything possible to try and prevent war, and so are therefore in a good position to be able to go into war. But if you have a look at press commentary from the time, you can see how the press finds this idea of appeasement quite troubling. If you have a look, for example, at the Yorkshire Post in December 1938, by repeatedly surrendering to force, Chamberlain has encouraged aggression. Our central contention, therefore, is that Mr Chamberlain's policy has throughout been based on a fatal misunderstanding of the psychology of dictatorship. And Winston Churchill speaking in October of the same year in 1938. We have suffered a total defeat. I think you will find that in a period of time, Czechoslovakia will be engulfed in the Nazi regime. We have passed an awful milestone in our history. This is only the beginning of the reckoning.
1: All very powerful stuff from the the press at the time, James. This idea of appeasement or Chamberlain sucking up to Hitler does, however, pose a really interesting historical problem, and that is that we know that it failed. And it's very, very easy to look back on this period with that knowledge in our minds. So it is quite important to realise that at the time when Chamberlain was supporting this policy of appeasement, there were a lot of politicians who supported him. Many, many more politicians supported him than actually opposed him. And it means that because of the horrors of what happened next, it's been very easy to look back on this period and say, oh, with the negative connotations that he was sucking up, it was always doomed to fail. There's a very kind of easy way of looking back on this negatively, but that's not necessarily the way it was perceived at the time. And the other side of this, of course, is to see Hawks, uh, someone who uh, who, uh, was realistic and fearful of the way, that Hitler was behaving as a dictator and wanted to prepare Britain to fight, people like Winston Churchill, to see them as being far-sighted and to to recommend their aggression, to see it as a good thing in the politics of the time. But it really wasn't that simple at the time of it all happening. Time for a quick quiz, James, to see if everyone's been listening. If you don't know the answers to these guys, you're going to have to go back and listen again. When did Hitler take Germany out of the League of Nations? Two. On which country did Hitler try out his new weapons in 1937? Three. What was the name of the British Prime Minister responsible for supporting the policy of appeasement? Four. Who was the French leader
2: who supported the policy of appeasement? Fifth. What percentage of German-speaking people in the Sudetenland did the appeasers first offer to Hitler as territory that could be incorporated into Germany.
1: And do we have a task for them, James? We
2: certainly do have a task, Sam. And this week, it is an absolute humdinger. It's all to do with newspapers. Now, your task is to write a selection of newspaper headlines for the 30th of September, the day after the Munich Agreement. And your selection could include headlines for a neutral American newspaper, a German newspaper, a Czech newspaper, a Polish newspaper, and also different British newspapers who had different opinions about the Munich Agreement. For each newspaper, it's a humdinger, isn't it? For each newspaper, Mm. decide whether the agreement would have been seen as a triumph or a sellout. And for one of the headlines, write a short article describing the agreement.
1: Now, that is some challenge, thinking of all of the different ways people were um, interpreting Hitler's and Chamberlain's behaviour. That's why actually this is such an exciting topic to do as a historian because you can look at it in so many different ways. Um, Fascinating stuff. Thank you all for listening, guys. Do please check out historiesoftheunexpected.com for our books, our other podcasts, our live shows for when they come back. And do please find us on social media. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter. Do please come and make friends. We want to hear from every single one of you. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye, guys.